Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 392 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. Let's call it Skylab. Last time we spoke, the latest AAP 1967 proposal was to use a spent wet stage S-4B with a docking adapter where an Apollo command module and a lunar module with the Apollo telescope mount could dock. To better clarify this, take a look at at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and see the pictures for episode 391. We stopped last episode just after the horrible Apollo 1 accident. While investigations continued into the loss of the three astronauts and the effect of the space program, background work continued in other areas of Apollo and the Apollo Applications Program. About six weeks after the accident, Deke Slayton, Director of Flight Crew Operations at MSC, expressed concern about the proposed workload on the AAP crews when they finally reached orbit. According to Slayton, there remained an excessive number of experiments assigned to the first AAP manned mission. The planning required a total of 672 experiment man hours, but only 429 hours were available, leaving a deficit of 243 in-flight man hours. The same problem existed in the training program, in which experiments required 485 hours per man with only 200 hours per man available, a deficit of 285 hours per man. In March of 1967, several days of discussions concerning increased electrical power requirements to make the orbiting workshop habitable and to carry an increased experiment payload resulted in the decision to add solar arrays to each side of the S-4B instead of relying on additional fuel cells in the service module. The Apollo telescope mount would continue to carry its own solar array panel 
and power system supporting the experiment's own power requirements. Following the Apollo 1 accident, several review boards re-examined the issue of flammability on the orbital workshop, including conducting flammability tests of the S-4B hydrogen tank and insulating it with an aluminum foil flame retardant liner. By early May, flight schedules had changed. The first two missions, AAP-1 and 2, would not be launched before the beginning of 1969. These missions were to accomplish orbital workshop setup and 28-day mission objectives, but without carrying the lunar module hardware. Missions 3 and 4, that is AAP-3 and 4, would fly in mid-1969 to accomplish the 56-day Apollo telescope mount objective and the reuse of the orbiting workshop. The plan also featured two additional flights, AAP-5 and 6, to revisit the orbiting workshop and the Apollo telescope mount using refurbished command and service modules that would previously have flown in Earth orbit tests in 1968. Other AAP missions were planned for low Earth orbit from 1970. These would see two dual launches, AAP-7 and 8 and AAP-9 and 10, each featuring a manned command service module and an unmanned experiment module to expand the facilities on board the orbital workshop. The series of missions to the first orbital workshop would be completed by two long-duration AAP-11 and 12 missions with the command and service module-only launches to establish a near-continuous occupation. On May 12th, the workshop's atmosphere issue came on up again. Jay Bolderand of headquarters and Charles Berry of MSC released a staff paper recommending a 69% oxygen and 31% nitrogen shirt sleeve atmosphere in the workstation. This generated further discussion between the centers on the impact that such a mixed gas environment would have on environmental design and the psychological response of the astronauts. The resulting consensus indicated that 5 PSIA would meet all the needs in the orbiting workshop. Twelve days later, due to the delays from the Apollo 1 accident and inquiry, NASA was forced to change its Apollo and AAP launch schedule. The new schedule called for a total of 25 Saturn 1B and 14 Saturn 5 launches. This included two workshops flown on the Saturn 1B, two Saturn 5 workshops, and three Apollo telescope mounts with the first AAP launch planned for no earlier than January of 1969. To promote the program, AAP innovations were frequently highlighted to justify the need for and cost of the program, particularly the reuse of the command module, 
The double use of the S-4B as both a propulsive stage and a laboratory, repeated use of the same laboratory in orbit, and flights of increasing duration and complexity employing existing Apollo hardware and infrastructure. The whole program was promoted as access to space at a relatively low cost with significant experiments that would benefit all mankind. It was also pointed out in program planning documents that the AAP missions would draw upon previous flight experience, taking full advantage of the Apollo-Saturn system and continuing to offer significant contributions to a wider range of objectives. The AAP technical summary of June 1967 indicated that AAP missions were designed to gain experience, test theory, perform experiments, and collect data. The summary also stated that by modifying and expanding the basic Apollo systems, AAP would determine man's usefulness in space in areas of extended spaceflight and manned astronomical observations. The extended duration of the missions would enable the program to gather much more data from each mission. In order to achieve these objectives and save cost, Deke Slayton and Chris Kraft at MSC suggested that it would be better to first launch the unmanned workshop and then the manned command and service module. By doing so, if the orbital workshop failed in launch or in orbit, the command and service module would not have to be launched. The crew would then not be exposed to the hazards of boosted flight, retrofire, or reentry and landing if their primary mission failed. It would also leave a usable command and service module available for another mission. Slayton and Kraft also pointed out the need to first flight-prove new equipment, in this case the orbital workshop, before committing a proven system, in this case the command and service module. Finding that the new equipment was not yet ready to receive it, so, NASA went with their suggestion, and this was the method eventually chosen for Skylab. In July 1967, Jim Webb testified before the Senate Committee on Appropriations over the fiscal year 1968 NASA Authorization Bill. He was asked to make further cuts in either the proposed Voyager unmanned landing mission on Mars or in the AAP. Webb replied that both were vital to the U.S. space effort. The AAP was a small expansion of investment after already spending $15 billion to reach the current stage of development, and he also supported the Voyager program because of Russia's known interest in exploring Mars, which could be used for many purposes, to serve mankind or for military purpose. Criticized for his indecision, Webb said that he would neither support cuts nor endorse either program, beyond stating that both were needed. Unfortunately, 
This was the beginning of several budget cuts that affected NASA and its centers in the late 1960s and early 1970s. As the AAP struggled to stay funded, the spent stage concept emerged as the strongest element and became a credit to Marshall, which sustained the program in the face of staff layoffs and restricted budgets. By careful management of funds, reusing flight-proven hardware, and allocating significant amounts of the budget to extensive testing and backup hardware, the program managers were able to overcome shortfalls. Although the program never obtained every dollar that was required, it made use of every cent it received and ensured that it compensated for what it did not receive. By July of 1967, in order to save weight, designers decided to incorporate the two orbital workshop floors into one common graded floor in the crew quarters. The crew quarters would be located towards the oxygen tank at the far end under one side of the grid. The other side, the larger volume, would be used for experiment operations. There were two major factors in this alteration to mission planning. Firstly, the very real likelihood of further funding cutbacks during 1968 through 1969. And secondly, the amount of surplus Apollo hardware that the AAP might inherit because of rescheduling as a result of the Apollo 1 pad fire. Sadly, by October, the budget squeeze was being felt as NASA was forced to change the AAP schedule. The results were a reduction of the number of AAP lunar missions to four. Now there would be 17 Saturn 1B launches and seven Saturn 5 launches in the AAP program, with two workshops launched by a Saturn 1B and only one on a Saturn 5 and only three Apollo telescope mounts. And the first launch of the AAP workshop was delayed to no earlier than March of 1970. In November of 1967, a safer design change was introduced during meetings in Huntsville and NASA headquarters in Washington. MSC Houston proposed an alternative configuration for a dry workshop. The workshop would be fitted out on the ground, be launched unfueled, and not be used as a live stage during the ascent. Houston said this would overcome several problems that had been encountered during the last few months and was based on the MSC idea of an experiment carrier that could be fitted out on the ground and launched on a series of Earth orbital missions. MSC never liked the wet stage concept offered by Marshall, believing it was impractical to allow astronauts wearing suits to fit out the stage in orbit. As a result, the two space centers' arguments continued, with Marshall calling the MSC experiment carrier the MAX CAN, a reference to the spacecraft designer Max Faget. 
After discussing this option, it was finally decided to continue with the wet stage configuration for the time being. On the other hand, there was considerable interest in the prospects for a manned astronomical observatory. In December, after a NASA presentation, the Astronomy Mission Board expressed interest in crew participation in the Apollo telescope mount. They also recommended early crew assignment for the Apollo telescope mount so that adequate training in solar physics could be provided. And once again, a recommendation was offered for scientist astronauts to be assigned as members of any Apollo telescope mount flight crew. By January of 1968, the orbital workshop design split along two paths. NASA's proposals of the Saturn V orbital workshop for fiscal year 1969 budget request featured a ground-outfitted orbital workshop to be launched by Saturn V. It was redesignated the Saturn V workshop and was sometimes referred to as a dry workshop. The Saturn 1B workshop, termed the wet workshop, or OWSA, would be launched by a Saturn 1B. By February, to make things a little more complicated, designers came up with two more versions of the dry workshop. OWS-B was a relatively simple generic evolution of a Saturn 1B, OWSA, developed from the first AAP mission and retaining some early elements. The significant differences were in the incorporation of the Apollo telescope mount as an integral part of the orbital workstation and not including the lunar module ascent cabin design. The controls for the Apollo telescope mount would be located inside the orbital workstation. The second design, OWSC, was a more advanced evolution toward extended operations in Earth orbit and would provide living and working spaces for up to nine crew operating in orbit over two years or more. But still, in April of 1968, facing stringent funding restrictions, there were more revision to the flight plans. Under the budget cuts, the wet lab concept now seemed much more likely to survive. More cuts were made in June of 1968. This time, a total of only 11 Saturn 1B flights and one Saturn V flight were allocated to the program. Two flights of the orbiting workshop, one launched by Saturn 1B and one launched by Saturn V, would be supported by a backup orbital workstation there was still only one Apollo telescope mount included. The first launch would occur in November of 1970, and the lunar missions were no longer considered as part of the AAP planning, which solely featured the orbital workshop operations. In the summer of 1968, a movement began for a change in nomenclature. 
It was suggested that a name to describe both the AAP and follow-on stations, then termed the Interim Orbital Workshop, would create a better identity for the program, such as Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo had done. It was urged that the names, such as AAP, Workshop, and Extension of Manned Spaceflight, be dropped, as they did not accurately describe the major goal of manned spaceflight. The first suggestion for a new name was the, quote, Space Base Program, end quote. No matter what it would be called, making sure that it had hardware to fly was becoming more difficult. In August of 1968, NASA directed its contractors to limit the production of Saturn V engines for Apollo and the AAP and effectively terminated the production of 27 H-1 and 8 F-1s and 3 J-2 engines. Apollo had yet to fly with a crew on board, let alone complete a flight to the moon, and already the stocks of hardware were being reduced. And, as an example of how unsettled AAP was early in 1969, during a meeting to discuss feasibility of a large space station as a major post-Apollo effort, George Miller suggested that the space shuttle should be developed first before the space station characteristics were decided upon. This was an influential early decision in trying to secure the budget for the space shuttle before funding of the interim space station it was designed to service. During May of 1969, a review of the previous three years of delays, design changes, late decisions, and cost cuts delayed the Marshall Orbiting Workshop wet stage design. But the early success in man rating the Saturn V on the third launch, which was Apollo 8, meant that one of the Saturn V's could be used for an AAP mission earlier than previously expected. Now looking forward revealed uncertainty in spaceflight programs after the AAP and it was difficult to visualize integrated orbital workshops and Apollo telescope mount missions beyond 1972 to keep the program sustained. It also became apparent to plan the next larger space station essential data from AAP would be required. So, AAP had to fly to prove that it could be done and then see if funding would be provided. The priority became to fly one AAP workshop before asking for funds to support any follow-on programs. In May of 1969, during the Manned Spaceflight Management Council meeting, Miller sounded out each center director and AAP office with regard to the direction the program should take. Discussions included wet over dry workshop configurations, as well as Lunar Module, Apollo Telescope Mount, and Command and Service Module operations. 
MSC argued that it had originated the dry stage option, while Marshall countered with the fact that the wet stage was the best that could be offered within the budget restrictions. Another issue was all of the Saturn V's were committed to the lunar program. Only a launch by Saturn 1B was feasible, and this required a live second stage, the S-4B. However, presented with the greater lift capability of the Saturn V, even Von Braun was beginning to accept the dry stage concept, and he started to win over his reluctant colleagues at Marshall. In a letter to Miller on May 23rd, Von Braun reiterated the use of the Saturn V and the benefits of launching a fully fitted out S-4B by a two-stage variant of the Saturn V. It also meant that the payload capacity of the command and service modules could be reduced as most of the consumables and equipment could be launched on the station using the Saturn V. Three days later, Gilruth sent Miller his recommendation for the change to a dry workshop as it offered the best chance of an early completion of the AAP basic objectives of 56-day missions and solar research. The reduced cost of the AAP program would be crucial in obtaining approval from Washington to fund the proposed larger space station and space shuttle programs for the late 1970s. With these changes, the Apollo telescope mount could be launched attached to the orbiting workshop on the Saturn V, removing the need for one Saturn 1B launch and the complicated rendezvous and docking by the lunar module which was carrying the Apollo telescope mount and simplifying the design and the supporting rack. The solar arrays could also provide a backup source of power, communications, and control to the overall station, providing an added element of redundancy. On July 18, 1969, with Apollo 11 on its way to the moon, the new NASA administrator, Thomas Paine, approved the change from wet to dry workshop and followed it on July 22nd by abandoning the idea of launching the orbital workshop on a Saturn 1B, choosing instead to use a single Saturn V. Ironically, at the height of Grumman's success in placing the Lunar Module Eagle on the moon, they also received a letter of termination for their Lunar Module Apollo telescope mount. Of course, this led to several other changes, including reducing the number of launches from 5 to 4, all from Launch Complex 39 rather than Pad 37 as previously allocated for the Saturn 1Bs. The launch date also slipped from November of 71 to July of 72. NASA's formal adoption of the dry configuration was announced on July 22nd, two days before Apollo 11 came home. The AAP was gathering momentum towards becoming a fully-fledged successor to Apollo, using the triumph of Apollo 11 to announce that the dry workshop would be the configuration that would give America 
the first of what was expected to be a series of space stations. There was still much to do before the workshop was launched, but as the 1960s ended, the program finally received a new identity. On February 17, 1970, NASA announced that the AAP had been renamed. The new name was derived from a laboratory in the sky first proposed by Donald L. Stillman of the U.S. Air Force while working at NASA in 1968. At the time, NASA didn't want to name the program due to budget restrictions, but now it formally approved the name. America's first planned space station would enter the history books as Skylab. In March of 1970, President Nixon listed his administration's goals in space for the 1970s. The fourth item was a desire to extend America's manned capability for living and working in space. This would start with a large orbiting workshop using Apollo hardware. Nixon stated, quote, We expect there will be men working in space for months at a time during the coming decade, end quote. So, it appeared the president approved of the Skylab Experimental Space Station as part of a larger program to work in space for months at a time during the 1970s. However, once again in the space program, Although the interest and desire to achieve bold plans was at the forefront of the speeches and the studies, the funding to achieve it certainly was not. For most of 1970, NASA and the Skylab contractors were consolidating the design for the space station and refining its launch plans to follow the final Apollo moon flights in three years' time. In April, a rumor was circulated that after the cancellation of Apollo 20 in December 1969, NASA might also be forced to cancel two more manned lunar missions in order to divert hardware for the Skylab program. The launch vehicle from one of those lunar missions would be used to launch a planned second Skylab. The Saturn V from the second canceled moon mission might be held in storage to be used to launch a larger space base that could orbit for a decade and become the core module for a proposed 100-man space station. Now, at this point, some fear-mongering began about the safety of the astronauts in prolonging the use of the Apollo system, especially since President Kennedy's goal was achieved twice in 1969, and there had been little indication that the Soviets were able to succeed at their own manned lunar program. Furthermore, public interest and media coverage of further lunar flights was beginning to wane. Apollo 11 had proved it was possible to land on the moon, and Apollo 12 had shown that the landing site could be restricted to a very small area. 
the next flights were aimed at much more difficult landing sites of greater scientific interest. However, in any Apollo lunar mission where the chances of rescue were slim and at some stages impossible, taking extra risk for a few more rocks was no longer a compelling argument for the politicians or the public. The aborted flight of Apollo 13 in April 1970 revealed the vulnerability of the spacecraft and the astronauts. Had the explosion occurred after the lunar module had undocked from the command and service module, or on the way home, the crew would not have had the resources and margin of safety that the lunar lander had provided during the accident. In September of 1970, with further budget restrictions pending on NASA, in order to meet any sort of long-range plans, the agency canceled the flights of Apollo 18 and 19. Thus, the Apollo lunar missions would end in 1972 and would be followed by Skylab at the end of that year. The new schedule called for a launch of the unmanned Skylab in November of 1972, and it would be operated for about eight months. The first manned mission to Skylab would be launched the day after the workshop was launched. This was called the 28-Day Activation Mission. It would also study the psychological and physiological aspects of extended-duration spaceflight. The second mission of 56 days was to be launched in January 1973, 70 days after the first mission. Its primary objective was the operation of the Apollo telescope mount, which was now mounted on the side of Skylab. The third crew launched was scheduled for May 1973, 102 days after the launch of the second crew. This mission would focus on Earth resource observations during their 56-day mission, ending the planned series. As the design of Skylab hardware was being finalized, and the definitions of the scientific objectives and experiments were being discussed, the flight planning was also reaching a definitive stage. By 1970, the astronauts were beginning to take a more active role in the program, and although no crews were yet assigned, they participated in formulating how to prepare the crews for flying the missions. During this time, 1970 to 1972, there emerged a possible fourth new docking mission with Skylab, but not by an American Apollo spacecraft. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. 
This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 392 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab. Let's call it Skylab. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I'm going to try to move through this outro quickly since this is the third episode in June. I am up against my storage quota over at Blueberry. Luckily, it does reset every month. Our next episode should be released by July 14th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 211 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Have a few really quick afterthoughts. Of course, I want to apologize for my mispronunciations. And I kind of left a cliffhanger there at the end. I hope you were paying close attention. A fourth new docking mission with Skylab, but not by an American Apollo spacecraft. Did you know about this? What could I possibly be talking about? Find out on the next episode. I was glad to see that they finally went over to the dry stage design. I think the wet stage was just too difficult to perform as well as dangerous, especially with the limited level of experience that the Americans had with spacewalks. Additionally, they could put much more scientific equipment in the lab if it was dry, and also put the Apollo telescope on the Skylab without the complications of docking with a lunar module Apollo telescope mount. So it really made things a lot easier. Wasn't it amazing how big the AAP was and how small it became? The politicians wanted to talk up their support for these projects because it was popular with the people. Well, most of the people. But when it came to backing up the speeches with funding, it just wasn't there. It seems, as I've said many times before, NASA is always at the mercy of the whims of politicians. For those interested in the House progress, we have been moved in for almost three months now and loving it. And over the past fortnight, we got one punch list item accomplished. They came out and buffed out the scratches on the bathroom vanities. Wow, it took about an hour to do that. <laughs> uh, still no window screens. It looks like the dehumidifier I was talking about last week has been successful, or last episode has been successful in the basement, and the humidity has gone down to 47%, which is a lot more reasonable. That dehumidifier seems to run a lot, and it puts out heat, so it's a lot warmer in the basement than you would expect. So that is your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received four donations, and I would like to thank Anonymous, who donated at the Orion level. Thank you very much. Chris N. from the UK, who donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. Mrs. Victoria H. from London, England, who donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. And I'll save the fourth 
donor until episode 400. And uh, also, I want to give a big shout out to uh, Marco M. Sent me in an early bir- uh, birthday present. It's, it's the uh, Skylab version of the Saturn 1B, and it's an ST's rocket, so we can fly it here at the farm. <laughs> that was a really nice gesture. I appreciate that so much. Marco, thank you. Our total Patreon donors have reached 254. That's one down from last time. The goal is 300 by the end of the year. Total donors are at 328 for the year with a goal of 500. So if you're enjoying the podcast that's been running nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you'd like to donate by mail, which works fine for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 11 months now. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. SpaceRocketHistory at gmail.com Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner of the drawing will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Harold Daner. Harold Daner, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, to tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 328 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. That's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 393 posted by July 14th. Happy Independence Day for those of you living in the U.S. and so long for now.